I think that people really start like a lot of coaches really start to question their their value with a lot of like you know I don't want to say debunking but like when when we say that certain things don't matter they're like that's one less way that I can provide value to my to my people and they get defensive about that because they're like okay well if that like value add that I thought I had that's gone and then like you start stripping down like their confidence in themselves and they get defensive about it um so I think like the more you realize like how many things don't matter like the the better and more confident that you have to be as a coach and like being able to deliver the, the few things that really do hey alex hey drew how you doing <laughs> hey guys we're, we mixed up our intro today um but no this is a fun one alex who are we talking to we're, we're talking to Alec Blennis, who some of you may know of, um, not as well known, but I've shared a few of his posts because he's doing some crazy cool stuff. Um, Alec is a strength and conditioning coach who's been doing it for a decade now. Uh, his athletic accomplishments are really impressive, especially because they span both like the strength world and the endurance world. Uh, he's, he's won numerous marathons and ultra marathons. He specialized for a long time in Spartan races, won a lot of them leading to eventually being on the Spartan pro team for a while. And he is the current world record holder for Murph. Um, the, the original version unpartitioned 20 pound weight vest, 32 minutes and 41 seconds. I'm not sure why anybody would want to pursue that world record, but more power to him. Uh, and he is a concurrent training specialist with complete human performance, where he's worked with a wide range of individuals spanning that similar spectrum of powerlifters, marathon runners, and plenty of tactical athletes since 2014. And the, we brought Alec on because, well, I mean, one, he is prolific on his Q and A's on Instagram. So like, if you're looking for a resource of people or sorry, a resource of someone who is talking about how to train folks efficiently, like go to his Instagram. Um, but two, one of the things that's interesting about him is that his background is not, I mean, despite the, the bio we just went through, his background is not in strength and conditioning. He has his degree in physics. And so we get into some interesting rabbit holes around certifications. Um, you know, are they, are they, are they worth it? Are they not worth it? Where should you invest your energy? Where should you invest your time? So it's an interesting it's an interesting conversation. We explore a lot of things. Yeah, we definitely, there's some things in here where we challenge some traditional notions like we always try to do, um, but some really good takeaways in terms of like core principles for how to do quote unquote concurrent training, which is just trying to be well-rounded in terms of having endurance and strength. So we dive into how to balance that out. Well, and I think we mentioned that when we were talking to him, we mentioned when we recorded this, we mentioned the fact that he was chasing, I think it was a double body weight lunge and i think the day after so this would be yesterday the day after we recorded it he did it which i don't remember his exact body weight but needless to say it's like a lot of weight so that was you know he's impressive it was a lot of weight it's way more <laughs> than i can lunge enjoy You guys have your, your work cut out for you. I've worked with a lot of tactical athletes from various branches and it's like, it just seems like such a clusterfuck. Like I'll ask people like, so what does your, like, what does your PT look like? Or what's, what's mandatory for you versus optional and whatever. And like everyone I talk to, it's different. I'm like, this is what, <laughs> like, it just seems so weird. 
there is no, I'll say this having been like on the coaching side. And then now on sort of, I say I've gone corporate cause now I'm sort of overseeing the coaching side, but there is no structure. I mean, special operations is almost even worse because the guys have so much autonomy. So, you know, I have never been around, nor have I advocated for any of the training or programming to be mandatory. I prefer when guys kind of do it because they like doing it, but then what that creates is a lot of like program hopping or guys shopping around or kind of to your point, just like no structure whatsoever. Um, and now we're in a space with H2F. So I've got 14 strength coaches under me, but I've got 2,500 soldiers. And so my guys do a lot more educating than like one-on-one programming. And that actually has been interesting to see as the podcast has unfolded, because a lot of them, I mean, I'll hear, you know, I'll pick up conversations of guys talking about zone two stuff or talking about concurrent stuff. And I think what's been interesting. And one of the reasons kind of back to your original question of why we wanted to bring you on to chat is because obviously you're pretty well read as sort of your own Guinea pig on the concurrent side of things. And I've not seen at least in my own education as a coach, aside from, I would say Alex's stuff and sort of the complimentary or the the complete human performance stuff, there's not much tangible takeaways on how to do it right. And I think that's what a lot of the coaches, at least from what I've seen are interested in is kind of the X's and O's and what works and what doesn't and why this versus that. Um, I know I I sort of rambled there a little bit, but hopefully that gives you some idea. Yeah. Yeah. And it's it's really cool to see that people are, you know, thinking about it on a, a higher level to bring it to coaches and stuff like that. Cause I've talked to so many military guys, I'm like, so what's your PT look like? And they're like, well, uh, sometimes it's like a thousand body weight squats and sometimes it's a three mile run and just like, okay, <laughs> I'm going to, I'm going to program, program around this, right? Like that's an easy job. <laughs> <laughs> um, so yeah, thanks. Thanks for the work that you guys are doing. I got to start because like Alex mentioned, I mean, our Q and A's you're, you're a prolific Q and a guy on Instagram. Now, is that like just your full, when do you not answer questions on Instagram? You know, I don't spend as much time as you might think. Like I'm, I have a pretty flat flexible schedule, right? Like, so I work in the gym. Um, I can set aside like pretty lengthy workout blocks sometimes kind of depends the ebbs and flows. Uh, but usually I'm just kind of like shooting those off between sets um, so when I'm work, work, working out, you know, like do a set of squats and then like, you were like, how long do you rest between sets? I'm like, I don't know how long this question takes, um, <laughs> no, like type, type, type of response. Um, so I always kind of get a, a chuckle and people are like, you know, get off your phone between sets, like folks in the fucking workout. I'm like, why? Like I got other shit to do too. You know, like, <laughs> what am I going to, what am I going to do? Just throw up in this space. Like I'm, I'm being productive here. Um, so that's like my main, main time that I do it. Um, yeah. I just, it's so, I love it because not only, you know, everybody, there's a lot of Q and A's out there, but like your answers tend to be small essays a lot of times. And so now I can just envision you sitting there between sets, just like, you know, typing out <laughs> paragraph form answers to questions. I love it. It's great content. Well, like, so what kind of got me started on it? I just kind of like stumbled into it by accident. Um, was I just got tired of like, just so much Instagram content these days, like about fitness is trying to like explain a concept in one screenshot of tweet. And like, that doesn't make sense. Like not that you have to have this overwhelming amount of nuance or like write some long-winded essay every single time, but like we just, we miss and oversimplify so many things. Um, And especially when you come at something with like your particular bias, like a power lift 
assistant coach is talking about a, a certain concept, like they'll, they'll put something in a tweet that like maybe makes sense for like the majority of their target audience. But then you like see it shared and like people are like, hey man, I tell everybody this. I'm like, well, hold on a second. Like, stop. <laughs> let's like, <laughs> let's discuss this just a little bit, a little bit further. Cause it's like a very, very narrow perspective. And I just think it's, it's dangerous when you start applying like powerlifting common knowledge to like general training populations or like you, you name it, like apply any niche to a different one. And it just doesn't make sense anymore. That's something Drew and I have talked about pretty extensively is that tactical doesn't have its own paradigm yet. And I don't, I don't think it's like easily, I don't think you can easily put tactical in a box because there's so many different jobs and so many different settings and things like that. Somebody earlier sent me, I don't remember whose it was, but it was like a, this is the program for soldiers and explain it. And I don't, I don't know. Like this is a little bit one size fits all super generic, whatever. But, but what we, what we don't have and what I think we kind of need are some, and Drew offers a set of his, but like a set of guiding principles for what, how to approach program design for tactical or how to approach building programs for tactical. And I'd be, uh, I'd be curious to hear your guys' perspective on this. Cause like being a tactical athlete is like, it's hard to even put a definition on what that means. Like the job description is very broad. Right. So when you tell me like, okay, describe the perfect, uh, describe the perfect marathon runner. I can like describe the general build. I can describe the general performance characteristics, et cetera. Um, but then once you get something like a tactical athlete, like describe the perfect tactical athlete, I can think of like tons of different athletes that would make phenomenal soldiers and they're nothing alike. So it's like, how do you program and build an athlete for which like there is not a gold standard? You're just like trying to build someone who's capable and there's a lot of ways to do that. So it's like, that makes it hard to even have a paradigm. Oh, and so to your point and the closest, the closest I would, I would kind of say that I got or get as a coach to that point is there was an inflection for me working with guys early on chasing sort of arbitrary metrics. I mean, I think the one that a lot of folks sort of growing up in this space think of is like a seven minute 2k row or like a double body weight squat or deadlift, depending on who you talk to, like these random metrics that we all kind of associated with performing well in the kind of quote unquote sport of combat. But then I would see over and over again, guys that were not top performers in the gym come back from deployments with all the accolades, all the success stories, like clearly had performed very well. And so what I kind of started to trend towards is instead of training for the sport, the same way that you might train, like you mentioned a marathoner or a wide receiver or whatever, where you have these objective performance metrics, you really need to go at the underlying physiology. And that really changes the way that you build training models. Because if you go after the physiology and just try to build a robust athlete, then you get a broader base to build the tactical skill set on top of. And if you go about it that way, and I, I get that some of this is a little bit optimistic, but if you go about it that way, then shape, size, whatever, doesn't matter as much as it does if you sort of just try to take, you know, like you mentioned, powerlifting this and football that and basketball this and, you know, agility, whatever. Um, that tends to just create chaos. Yeah, and I think that's where, like, the, the whole idea of general physical preparedness or GPP comes in, which, like, like, I like it in principle, but at the same time, like, when you have something that's so vaguely defined, like, it can mean anything, it then also means nothing. So it's like, okay, like what I, I always ask people, like, what do you mean by GPP? Mm-hmm. And then they just like, 
they describe their version of it. I'm like, <laughs> okay, <laughs> sure, that sounds that sounds good. Um, but yeah, it's just it's like how do you quantify something that is so general? You know, um, I've had athletes that like they they you know meet a very particular like kind of uh, performance profile or, or whatever. Um, maybe you look at like their squat and deadlift numbers, their running numbers, et cetera. And you kind of come to the conclusion, like this is, this is a strength and power athlete, or I have someone else that you look at their numbers and you're like, that's definitely more of like endurance athlete, whatever. Uh, but they all meet, you know, kind of the minimum standards to, to do well in that environment. And, you know, you guys would know better than me, like you actually put them out there and, and see how they perform. Can we even look at those numbers and have an idea, like maybe like a general understanding, but like, we don't actually know how successful they're going to be once they're out there. Um, so I think trying to quantify things too much is just like, misses the whole point. There's some approaches that I've seen that are kind of interesting. One is, and this is pretty specific to like combat roles within the military, because there are plenty of roles that aren't very combat oriented, but an, an approach to figure out what the metrics you're looking for are, could be take your highest performers, like professionally, your highest performers in like the actual training tasks they do and find the things they're worst at, like take each one and find that person's worst thing that they're, they're still able to perform with that as their floor. And that starts to give you an idea of where the, the threshold is that you have to be good enough in each metric for that. So not take your best people and find the thing they're best at, but take your best people and find the thing they're worst at. Cause clearly they can still perform even with that weakness in there. And, and as you guys are talking, I'm also thinking, and I may get a couple angry messages for this one, but Good. As we're, as we're rolling out human performance stuff to like the full scale conventional army, I think there's a conversation to be had. And if you get around to enough units, it's hard to avoid this. And if you look at the data on like obesity and in the force, and it, especially if you start to like broaden your definition of tactical to include like law enforcement and fire and EMS and things like that, some of those populations are actually like less fit than the general population on average you have to realize this is also kind of a public health thing too. So not necessarily even looking at like performance metrics, just like meeting physical activity guidelines and things like that. So behavior change kind of coaching too. Yeah. hundred percent. It's, it's crazy how many like people in, like you said, like police fire EMS, all that kind of stuff that like don't meet basic activity guidelines. You're like, what? <laughs> like, how are you, how are you going to do your job? You know, it's just kind of mind blowing. It was early on when I was learning about tactical, when I found out that most people in police and fire take a fitness assessment at the academy when they're coming in. And that is their last fitness assessment that they take in their career. That's astonishing to me. (laughs) So I'll, I'll turn around with a question for you. What not to, not necessarily talking about tactical specifically, but just your model of concurrent training. Are there some kind of core principles that rise to the top as like use these things to guide what you think about as design something concurrent? Good question. Broad question. (laughs) Um, (laughs) um, I'd say as far as like core principles go behind concurrent training, one is just being very efficient. Like when you want to be good at a lot of things, you can't waste a lot of time. Um, so there's kind of a, a lot of subcategories of this with like, um, utilizing a consolidation of stressors approach, which we can talk about, um, utilizing pre-fatigue, um, looking for kind of, um, synergistic adaptations, cutting out redundant work, that kind of thing. Uh, I think too many people, when they try to, to take, you know, a concurrent approach or become a hybrid athlete, they just think like, I'm just going to do like 
everything. I'm just going to, you know, do a 10 mile run and do a powerlifting program and throw some Metcons on there. And like, I don't know, maybe do a bike ride and like, you know, it works for a couple of weeks and they're just completely fried. And they're like, yeah, that everything wasn't for me. Um, it's like, well, <laughs> yeah, obviously efficient, uh, like ruthlessly efficient. Like it really does not take nearly as much volume of kind of each, each thing as people think it does when you're stacking like, you know, multiple disciplines on top of each other. Um, so that'd be kind of core principle uh, number one. And I think where most people should start, I think there's a lot of other kind of, there's, there's a lot of nuance we can get into with concurrent training, right? Depending on like, are we trying to train for endurance and hypertrophy or, um, you know, wh whatever, you know, disciplines we're trying to combine. Um, but most people, if they would just start with like proper stressor management and like figuring out how much work they actually need to be doing of some of these things, they could be super successful without even having to, to worry about the nuance. Like there's a lot of these optimizations we can make, right? But like, if you just figure out, oh, that's the amount of volume I need of this, you are golden and you're like already ahead of nine out of 10 people trying to do this. Do you, so I have a question off the back of that. And, and I'm always curious about this talking with, with other coaches, because presumably when athletes come to you to work, you know, they've got a training history. They've got examples of things that they like. They've got programs that they've done. Do you find yourself in the concurrent space tending to add more or take away more? You know, I think a lot of people and everyone's different, obviously. So throw that caveat in there, but I find that a lot of people have done a lot of bouncing back and forth. So they're like, you know, I, I've gone through periods of, you know, training like a runner, I've gone through periods of training like a strength athlete. And I hear all the time, they're like, I just can't seem to figure out how to do them both at the same time. So they're like, you know, at this point in my life, I was much faster at this point in my life, I was much stronger. Um, but they're like, every time I try to, you know, piece it together, I just like, don't feel good, or I can't seem to make progress and, and that kind of thing. Um, so it's, you know, pulling from people's athletic background, their history to figure out, okay, what kind of training plan worked for you when you were solely focused on this, what kind of training plan worked for you when you were solely focused on that, um, and taking bits and pieces of that, but again, trying to be very efficient. And generally I start, um, kind of assuming that someone doesn't necessarily have the capacity they think they do. Um, so, you know, I already want to be efficient, but like extra efficient, right? So a lot of things people will start off and they're like, this doesn't feel like enough. I'm like, let's just try it for a little bit. <laughs> I would much rather, I'd much rather add later than like be beating you up. And like, we keep taking away and like, you keep feeling like shit. Um, so I generally start by taking a lot of things away and think like, what is the absolute like bare bones program that I think could work for this person, see what happens. And then like potentially start adding some things into there. But I definitely start with a very minimalistic approach more often than not. I want, and you touched on this and I want to, I want to dive into it specifically because I know it's one of those nuggets that a lot of coaches especially would appreciate is that consolidation of stressor idea. Let's just unpackage that. Let's dive down that rabbit hole. What is it? Yeah. Yeah. Um, so consolidation of stressor is like basically the, the underlying principle there is like, don't think of, you know, a barbell squat as like a strength exercise or a hill sprint as like a, a running exercise or something like that. Just like break it down into like force time, what muscle is being worked. Like think of it very, like, what is your body understanding? Like not what is your mind thinking of it as, but like, what is your body experiencing? What kind of stress are, are you encountering? And then when you think about like managing the overall stress of a training day or a training week or a training cycle, thinking about the sum total of that. So rather than thinking of like, okay, well, I only have like seven sets of squats. So like that seems reasonable or, or whatever think along the lines of like, okay, in terms of like 
hard, high impact, heavy, like high force stuff on my legs. This is what I'm dealing with this week. And that could include your squats. It could include like include sprints in the bike, whatever. And like viewing that in total rather than just like thinking of things individually. Um, so when you think about it that way and you want to, you know, stress, stress your body enough to create kind of an adaptive response, have the time that you need to recover, um, and adapt before you apply a stressor like that again, um, say you want to give yourself, you know, for, for argument's sake, like 48 to 72 hours between stressors like that. If you're someone who's like, okay, I'm going to squat today. I'm going to do hill sprints tomorrow. I'm going to do like, you know, more leg work the day after that. It's like you just did day after day after day of like tough leg work, you know, and your brain's thinking like, you know, I've only squatted once this week, but your legs are like, what the hell, man? Like you were crushing me like day after day. Um, so the consolidations of stressors approach is basically just taking that, that latter perspective of like, what are your legs actually feeling? And instead of hammering them day after day after day, how can we consolidate, pack things together and say, okay, instead of doing a gajillion squats one day and your hill sprints the next, and just like never giving yourself a break, what if we cut the volume of each of those workouts, you know, by 30 to 40%, put them side by side, do them back to back in one day and actually give your legs a break, you know, the next day to recover and adapt. So you're ready for a workout like that in the future. Uh, so it, it often ends up meaning that you're combining a lot of like high intensity conditioning work with strength work followed by, you know, ample recovery and that kind of thing, which makes it a lot easier to just manage your overall stress and fatigue and that kind of thing. Cause you aren't ever in a situation where you're like, doing hard workout after hard workout after hard workout. So that leads into another one that I was going to hope to hit because you, you laid out a few different rabbit holes we could go down, but you've posted before about like pre-fatigue and what things benefit from being pre-fatigued and what things suffer from being pre-fatigued. Since you just asked you to go down the consolidation of stressors <laughs> rabbit hole, I'm going to, I'm going to ask you to go down the pre-fatigue rabbit hole and just give your thoughts on that one. Yeah. So I know they're very closely related, right? Like you can't, consolidate everything. Like you're going to go into some kind of training tired. Like if you're working hard, if you're making progress, there's going to be days that you're, you're tired and you don't want to just do nothing. Right. So you're like, okay, so when I'm tired, when, when I'm not at my best or when I'm fatigued in a certain way, because not all fatigue is necessarily created equal. Like maybe your legs are sore maybe your arms are sore. Maybe you're just tired, whatever. Um, you know, when I'm fatigued, you're not at my best in a certain way. What can I still do? What can I still do productively? Um, and what kind of benefits can I still get? Um, so kind of knowing when pre-fatigue makes sense, uh, when it might be detrimental and kind of structuring your workouts and training order and, and that kind of thing around that, you can make sure that you are at your best or at peak performance when you need to be. And you can be a little bit more tired when it doesn't necessarily matter as much. Um, so there's certain types of training where even if you are not at your best, say you're only, you know, functioning at 80, 90%, um, you know, of like, you know, feeling your best, you can still get a great workout, get a great stimulus out of that. Um, where on the other hand, if you, you know, are sore, feel like shit, et cetera, et cetera. And you go on and try to, you know, do like a two hour grinder of a hypertrophy session, like the energy is just not going to be there. You're not going to get a whole lot out of it. You're just going to be beating yourself up more. Um, so kind of knowing how to leverage that is a really important part of knowing, knowing how to design an effective hybrid routine, especially for someone that's kind of pushing the boundary. Um, so I'd say if you're kind of a entry level intermediate hybrid or concurrent athlete, you could potentially get away with not knowing some of these things, right? Like just put in the work, be smart about how you're managing your total stress, total volume, and you're going to be fine. But if you're getting to that point where you're like really pushing up the, the mileage, if you're a runner or, you know, volume on the bike or whatever, if you're kind of pushing the limits of, of your performance and getting into that intermediate to advanced level, 
um, knowing how to leverage things like pre-fatigue becomes more important. So with pre-fatigue specifically, um, the, the biggest consideration, biggest talking point I would say is, is zone two work in the sense that you can go into a zone two session, tired, sore, fatigued, and still get tremendous benefit. Um, in some ways, not in every way, but in some ways, maybe even more benefit than if you were to go into that session fresh. Um, so going into, um, you know, say you do a hard squat session one day, looks a little bit sore, you have an easy run the next kind of on tired or sore legs, that might be as good, if not better than if you, uh, you know, went into that run fresh and certain, certainly it would be better than if you did the reverse situation where you tire yourself out on the run and then try to squat fresh, or I'm sorry, squat fatigued, that's just kind of setting yourself up for failure. Uh, so knowing kind of just what order uh, of the stressors makes the most sense uh, and, and being fresh when you need to be, that's what pre-fatigue is all about. I think that's, that's interesting to hear because, I mean, I would make the argument that tactical athletes or concurrent athletes, or at least should be. And, and something that I see a lot of coaches maybe fall prey to because, and we've touched on this in previous episodes, I would argue most strength and conditioning coaches are strength power guys. Like the endurance side of things is a little bit foreign. They don't have a lot of understanding of it. And I'm sure there's plenty of endurance coaches out there that would say the other, but from what I've seen, at least most, most guys coming into this space come from a strength power background. And when you ask them to consider training as a whole, it generally falls into like a strength bucket, an energy system development bucket, and like a conditioning bucket. And then they'll sort of plug those throughout the week. But I think especially the consolidation of stressors point, but on top of that, the pre-fatigue point brings up interesting talking points because you're not thinking of training as these isolated buckets or puzzle pieces that you have to fit into the perfect mold in a given week. You're sort of looking at it as how's the body receiving it. And if you do that, then it becomes easier to manage training variables, because like you said, it's less about squat on this end of the spectrum and sprint on this end of the spectrum. It's, Hey, what, what is the body understanding? And then how does that feed into the time we have available? I mean, it's kind of just me ranting on like the philosophy behind it, but I see a lot of guys going into the weight room on the whiteboard and having like an ESD day and a strength power day and a conditioning day. And there's really no acknowledgement of the fact that at the level of the stimulus, it's purely energetics and tension. And if you dial those in, yeah, you can do whatever you want. I mean, not whatever you want, but you can kind of have some creativity with it. It, it makes it a lot easier to kind of observe and adjust Right. So like when you see how, how someone's responding to a program like this and they're, they're either responding really well, they're not doing exactly what you want. Like it's, it's easy to kind of adjust the dial. Um, where if you look at someone who's just kind of like mismatched, like throwing everything together and they're like, Hey, take a look at my program. Like, I don't think it's like, I'm not making the progress on the make. And I look at it and I'm like, I don't know what the fuck's going on here. Like, <laughs> <laughs> like sure. Like your legs are tired, but I don't know why, like, you know, like it gets very difficult to like figure out what's going on. What do you need to change? Like it's just so all over the place that it's, it's hard to like make the adjustments that you need to make um, where when you have things consolidated and a little bit more systematic and organized, you can be like, Oh, you were feeling like this on this day and kind of trace it back to like, we need to adjust the volume here and et cetera. And it's just much, much simpler. Um, not that you can't get good results with like a mishmash program. Like I've, I've seen people do it, just like throw a volume at themselves and adapt. And like, it, it can definitely work. Uh, but what, one, it's, it's not optimal and it's too, a lot harder to, to try to fine tune it. 
I think there's a, there's a trap there. Cause you talked about like some people will just adapt no matter what you throw at them. And some people are pretty like resilient and can tolerate that. And I think the way our system works and has worked for decades is that those people who survive the like randomness and high volume stuff end up being our senior leaders. Uh, Cause they're the ones who survive, like literally physically survive and are unbroken enough to continue progressing through higher leadership positions. And so they, they think they learned something from the process, but they kind of learned the wrong thing. Um, they survived the meat grinder. So they want to enforce the meat grinder and everybody behind them. Cause that's what they were taught to do. And yeah. the, the challenge we have now is how to break that machine. The like survivorship bias, right? Like, well, it worked for me. Like, <laughs> like, 100%. okay, it's not, <laughs> what about like the 99% that they got killed by it? You know? Exactly. I think I've shared it before on the podcast, but when, when I was a cadet going to school, there was, there was all this talk of like how amazing General McChrystal is and how everybody should be like him because he only sleeps four hours and he only eats one meal a day and he goes for 10 mile runs first thing when he wakes up after his four hours of sleep. And if you want to have a meeting with him, it's got to be during a run because that's just how it is. And, and like that was very aspirational at the time. And I look back at that, and I was like, man, that was, that was advice that's only going to work for a really small fraction of people and everybody else is just going to suffer. Yeah. And, but it's, it's hundred percent survivorship bias. And I don't know how we communicate that better, but. Well, the, the crazy stuff like that is like, that's what people talk about. Right. And that's what gets the attention. And then like couple of that with, you know, social media culture and, and all of that, with like people pushing the, the grind set and whatever. And it's like, when you actually reflect back on like, what is actually sustainable, tolerable and productive for like your average human being it's not that like, <laughs> like, <laughs> it's just not that like the actual workload that, that makes up a, a productive training program, the actual like quality work that you can get done. Like you say, working on the computer, like without wanting to take a break and like come back and be productive again. Like we operate best in fairly like small, concise time chunks, getting eight hours of sleep, like taking care of ourselves. Like, and it sounds, it's, it's crazy. Cause like that sounds so wild of like, you actually have to take care of yourself and like not run yourself in the ground. People are like, mm, I don't know about that. Like, <laughs> no, it, it, it makes sense. Just trust me on this. Uh, well, I want to get at a question about interference effect, but to kind of give some context to that, from what I've seen, at least a lot of the discussion or maybe misunderstanding about interference effect really comes from this idea that most people approach concurrent training the wrong way where they take hundred percent of a run program, hundred percent of lift program, smack them together. And then when it doesn't work, they blame interference effect. And I would make the case. And I know a lot of folks that have done this for a while might say the same, like interference effect doesn't apply to about 99% of people because they're just not doing enough, but I'd be interested in your thoughts on that. Yeah. And I, I think that you, you summarize that quite nicely and that, that most people just don't work hard enough for it to matter. Um, to, to like a lot of the a lot of the just like general ideas of like what is the interference effect where did it come from like how do we how did we even learn about it in the first place came from like overly overly simplistic like rodent studies and stuff so it's like has it actually been well validated in in humans not particularly well um and i think that when people talk about interference effect they're they're assuming that just because like a pathway is activated or this enzyme is released or this hormone level does this, they're assuming that that matters. So like it's often becomes tough to debate people because they're like, well, 
this, 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 and that. I'm like, yeah, so, <laughs> and, and like trying to have someone like that explain like, what is, how does that affect the outcome? You know, like, I don't care that whatever pathway was like downregulated for six hours. Like, why should I give a shit about that? Um, and more often than not, it just frankly doesn't matter. And it's a drop in the bucket in terms of like, what are the actual outcomes, you know? And people get into that too with like, so you talk about consolidation of stressors, pre-fatigue, um, kind of like maximizing efficiency with how you structure your workouts. And people be like, no, you should do this workout and then wait three hours and then do this workout because of this like metabolic effect. Like, yeah, but like, have you ever actually done that? Do you know how your legs feel? Like just <laughs> use, like, I, I, I hate saying like use common sense because that can lead us awry sometimes. But like, if you haven't actually done it and implemented it, like, sometimes you realize like what, what makes sense on paper, just like from a metabolic pathway perspective, doesn't make sense practically. And I think that's where, what a lot of people miss just with the interference effect at large. There's also a lot of danger in just, I don't know. It's, it's weird. I know, I know a decent number of doctors and few of them pretend to understand endocrinology stuff, but then I know a bunch of strength coaches who are very comfortable saying they understand endocrinology stuff. It's, it's on my list of like red flags of if someone starts to justify something with like a really, really simple hormonal regulation, upregulated, downregulated, whatever justification for it. I, I start to worry immediately that we're, we're trying to like <laughs> make up very mechanistic explanations of something that are just not, not that real. Right. Well, like take, take some of the, like, uh, take some like crazy supplements out there that'll market like, you know, this supplement showed like 350% spike in growth hormones. Like that sounds awesome. Like get me on that. Um, and then you're like, well, did it actually make people like bigger or stronger? It's like, no, it's like, <laughs> well, that's, that's weird. <laughs> um, and that's like, that's the exact same thing with, with the interference effect is like talking about all these metabolic pathways. Like it actually, like it actually means something. It makes you sound smart. That's about it. <laughs> Well, I just, I laugh because if you look, I mean, there, there is a body of, I'll call it peer reviewed literature around concurrent training. Like if you put concurrent training into Google scholar, stuff will come up. And to Alex's point, it's always this really convoluted discussion around pathway so much so that like some of the diagrams are like asinine in terms of like, there's a picture of a bicycle and then there's a bunch of cellular stuff. And then there's like a picture of a barbell and then there's 400 <laughs> pages on how to train concurrently. And none of it talks about consolidating stressors, managing recovery, communication with the athlete, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And it's interesting to see the guys like you who do it well versus the, I mean, I don't want to bash science, but like talk about overcomplicating something like concurrent training is probably the biggest boogeyman in the world. Cause if you think about it, yeah. it's just training but we've like right. slapped this name on it and it freaks people out. <laughs> well, and, and people love to look to the extremes, you know? So they look at like a Mr. Olympia and they're like, well, you know, a guy like that's not out there running like 60 miles a week. I'm like, obviously like that, that proves nothing. Like just like pointing at these super extreme examples of people with super narrowly focused goals to like explain why you're a fat ass, not doing any cardio. And like, that just doesn't add up to me. Like, I'm sorry. It just doesn't. <laughs> how did you arrive at sort of the hybrid approach? Cause you've, I mean, you've accomplished some pretty significant things that we'll get into, but how did you sort of get there? Um, you know, I think like a lot of people, I wasn't, uh, I wasn't good enough at any sport to pursue it specifically. <laughs> um, so I just did, did a little bit of everything kind of stumbled around until I found, um, 
I kind of fell into obstacle racing. Um, I was actually like really comp complicated, convoluted story, but um, I had to sit out a season of high school cross country because um, the like whatever association thought I was being illegally recruited. So they're like, you have to sit out here. Um, yeah, like some 17 minute 5K 10th graders totally being recruited. Uh, but anyway, I was like, okay, well, I got to find something to do to like stay, stay active, stay healthy. Um, and I found the Spartan race. And I think largely due to my background in like other sports, like I was never just a cross country kid. Like I did every event in tracks with like seven kids on our team. So like a meet for me was like, you got the mile, the two mile, four by four, pole vaulting, long jump. It was like, well, I can just be bad at all these. That'll be fun. Um, <laughs> so just like this, this is a very diverse background, from, like that wrestling, soccer. Just, like I'm just going to do all the sports just because my friends are doing it. Um, so not particularly good. Right. Um, but I was, I was okay at cross country. So kind of take that background, apply it to Spartan race. And I actually did really well in, in podium, my first event. I was like, oh, that was cool. Like, I feel like I'm actually pretty good at this. Um, so I did a couple more. Uh, Spartan picked up on the fact that I was pretty good at them. I signed on their, their Spartan pro team, ended up traveling around the country, did like 50 something of them in, in two years. Um, kind of became a, a chronic racer, both in obstacle racing and then progressively longer trail racing stuff. Um, where I ended up being pretty good at, at ultra marathons. Um, so over the years, I've done like 250 plus events, um, some like 100 obstacle races, 50 ultra marathons, ranging up to uh, like 90 miles was my longest ultra. Um, so I've done a lot of extreme endurance stuff, um, all while not wanting to be the skinny ultra runner. You know, like that look never appealed to me. So I never gave up like the strength work that I picked up like playing football, right? which I don't know if you can tell, but I'm not built to be a football player. Um, but I, I at least I at least learned some lessons in the weight room um, and kind of kept that going um, and realized that both were important for, for obstacle racing, which was kind of my main main jam at the time. Um, so I just got really interested in how can I do both of these things well? You know, how can I try to win ultras without being, you know, the super skinny guy? Um, and how can I stay strong enough to, to perform in obstacle races and that kind of thing? Um, and I stumbled across Alex Viata and hybrid athlete, um, learned a ton from him. Um, and then you know, just kind of a stroke of good luck ended up getting to work for him, uh, and kind of joined his company. So that's how I got into it. Um, yeah, I think it's a pretty common thread among hybrid athletes. So like, well, I just, this wasn't a good regular athlete. So here I am. Well, I think there's, there's something there. And I was thinking about this even before you, you told your story, but I think, the, the vast majority of exercisers are not training for anything in particular. They're not expecting to be elite in any given thing, but just because of the nature of like what's popular and what's gonna, what gets attention and what shows up on social media and in books and things like that, they think they have to like follow the frameworks of certain sports. And, and for whatever reason, powerlifting and bodybuilding have like kind of dominated the things that go on in a gym. Um, but I think it's, like you, you say it as though it's different to be somebody who's doing a bunch of different things, but that's actually what, like, I think most people would like to do is be able to do a bunch of different things. And it doesn't really matter if they're super elite in any given thing. And I, I wish we could have more conversations about that. I know it's not necessarily like as sexy because it doesn't get you on TV and huge paychecks and stuff, but, but that's much more applicable to like what normal humans want and should do like, yeah. So like when I get uh, new, new coaching clients, I like get their intake form and says what their goals are and whatever. And I get so many people, right. That say they want to do powerlifting and like some sort of cardio thing. 
I'm like, okay, cool. So I set up like the initial call with them, start going through like goals and stuff. And I can't tell you how many times I've talked to someone and been like, so like why powerlifting? You know, like why that specifically? And they start talking through it and I'm like, well, have you thought about like just training to be strong, but like not powerlifting? And they're like, you can, you can do that. I'm like, yeah, you can do that. Like, <laughs> um, you don't have to fit the molds of like that specific sport if you don't want to. And like a lot of people are super relieved. They're like, oh my God, let's do that. Like that sounds way better. <laughs> Yeah, I, I love that because I get I get the same. It's always it's always one and one. It's always powerlifting, or maybe sometimes for the for the connoisseur Olympic lifting, and uh, <laughs> some endurance event usually limited to a five k. But no, everybody that says powerlifting has no intention of standing in front of a judge, squatting, benching, deadlifting, and looking for three white lights. They just want to squat, bench, and deadlift. And to your point, it's like why not just like be strong. And it's a lot easier, at least from what I've noticed with kind of my own journey into this, like there's a ton of like local endurance events that you can just do that are fun while also just right. getting <laughs> strong on your own. And that is convenient insofar as like, you'll probably have to help your parents move some furniture at some point. And it's good to be the strong guy in the family versus like labeling yourself a capital P power lifter and thinking you have to do like five through one and then a 5k program on top of it. It's just weird that yeah. so many people bucket themselves into one of those two things. <laughs> well, when I started getting the brand of just like being the annoying guy who asks if certain things are stupid, I, like I, I posted early on and I probably should again of, I'm not convinced that the, the idea of core lifts makes sense. Like we put certain movements on a pedestal. And I think that's just because of powerlifting's like role in strength and conditioning more broadly. Like I don't, I don't see any reason why those movements are like quote unquote more foundational than any other movement. Well, know. Alec is doing like, aren't you trying to like double body weight reverse split squat right now or something <laughs> ridiculous? Yeah. So I, I could go on a tirade on like, please do the, <laughs> with like certain accessory movements. People are just like, they, it's an afterthought, like even good athletes and like, obviously what they're doing works for them to, to some extent. But I saw this, I saw a guy on Instagram post like his leg workout for the day and he was squatting like mid 500s for reps. I was like, damn, that's pretty good. Nice swipe. And he's doing like single leg deadlifts with like a 35 pound kettlebell. I'm like, <laughs> what? Like, are you for real right now? Like, why though? Like, it's in the know? name though, right? As soon as you're <laughs> calling them accessory exercises, it like devout, like they, they somehow get put on a lower tier. I will shout out Chris from an earlier episode calling them successory work instead of accessory work. I have stolen that and taken it. And I'm going to shout it out here. If you do successory work, you go heavier than 35 pounds on your kettlebell. <laughs> oh my God. I, the, just the effort that I see people putting into like single leg work in general is like, I don't know what you think you're accomplishing with that. Like, it, you know, just the math doesn't check out, like not saying that you should just like cut your deadlift in half and that's your single leg deadlift, but like, if it's way off from that, like if you pull 600 and you're like single leg deadlifting 10% of that, I just don't get it. It's an interesting point. If people don't follow Alec, I'll encourage them to check out some of his content doing some like pretty hardcore quote unquote accessory stuff. Well, he does. I know I like you do some pretty savage adductor machine work. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I'm like, I'm not a power lifter. Right. So I always think it's funny um, how, like, if you start talking about exercise or lifts with someone for long enough, they'll be like, well, what do you squat? I'm like I do squat, like, but like, that's not my life. 
like I don't build my like my entire social calendar and everything around like my squat day. Um, so like I have I have a good squat, but probably not um, not not yours. And then I'd be like, well, what do you what do you lunge? And they're like, well, why does that matter? <laughs> <laughs> like it's it's just another lift, man. Um, yeah, I love that. <laughs> how we yeah, it's it's bizarre how we and I'm not saying that either one is better than the other. Um, but people have definitely like, you know, glorified these three lifts just because of, of powerlifting and, you know, Olympic lifting and all that kind of stuff. And like, don't get me wrong. They're fantastic lifts. I think, you know, most people should incorporate some kind of, you know, squat pattern, if not a barbell squat, a leg press or, or whatever that should be in most people's program. Um, but it, it's not the end all be all. Do you, and this is probably one of those sort of softball questions, but as you've built out a lot of programs for a lot of different types of athletes that are chasing these, you know, hybrid goals, are there, are there some exercises that you've come across that you've have found have better, I'll call it carryover to the endurance side of things, but just more success when you're building out this type of program, like, are there some go-tos? Um, I don't, and I'm hesitant with like the word carry over there, like, I know that's a dumb question, but I'm asking it intentionally. <laughs> yeah. Um, I know one of my go-tos I'll, I'll answer without being too much of a pain in the ass about the question itself. No, um, please do. One of, <laughs> one of my go-tos is like supported, like fairly well-stabilized single leg work. Um, so it gets someone where they're not in a situation where they're like balancing or complaining, like that wasn't that heavy. I just felt like it was going to fall over. Um, like you hear that a lot. You're like, well, just hold on to something. Um, <laughs> So, uh, so like a, a supported, supported single leg deadlifts or even like a staggered stance or utilizing the landmine or something like that, or Hatfeld split squat. Like there's all these different things that you can do to, to stabilize some single leg work. And I see a, a ton of value in that. Um, a lot of times I'll see someone, you know, like say an initial, an initial assessment or kind of beginning of a program, they struggle like stability wise with the single leg work and they, in their head, like think they need balance. I'm like, no, you're just weak on one leg. Like let's stabilize you, get you strong and like come back to it. And it's totally fine. Um, so that's definitely one of my, one of my go-tos is getting people in a position where they can leverage single leg work like productively and not just make a fool of themselves. Yeah. Do you, uh, and then switching gears a little bit, cause we've, we've dialed in sort of the detail of the session and the managing, but I know you just recently posted some stuff on your thoughts around periodization planning, et cetera. I think that's kind of a logical next stepping stone. And I see Alex smiling because that was on his list. Um, you know, we had John Kylie on a couple of weeks back talking about this, just really challenging. I think a good way to phrase this would be challenging coaches to step away from this idea that everything needs to be pre-planned and charted out for the next 12 weeks, 16 weeks, whatever. And, and just because it's easy to do that doesn't necessarily mean that it's right. So I'd be interested, especially from a hybrid concurrent standpoint, how you navigate this idea of kind of maintaining a lot of things and then peaking for certain activities or events that, that folks are interested in and just what that looks like from your standpoint. Dude, half, half my clients, if I, if I wrote a periodized program for them, I would probably want to blow my brains out because every three months, every three months, they're like, they send me an email. They're like, Hey, actually I decided that like, I want to go this direction with my training and I signed up for this event or whatever. I'm like, that's not at all what we just talked. That's not at all what we talked about like last month. And now I have this like annual plan and I'm just like tossing the garbage and I secretly hate you. Um, like <laughs> periodization just doesn't work for like real people for that reason. Cause like their lives and their goals are too fluid. Um, so that's like 
problem number one is it just doesn't make practical sense for like real human beings to like change their mind, go on vacations or whatever. Like it just doesn't, doesn't necessarily make sense. And then two, even if you had someone that's like, I have this goal, it's two years out. This is my entire life for the next 24 months. Uh, and then you want to design a periodized plan around that. Um, like, yeah, you can make a good sell and talk about like, okay, we're going to do this phase and then this phase. And it like makes sense. Cause like, because we're getting these adaptations first, you're going to, you know, respond really well to the subsequent stress or whatever. It's, it sounds really good. And there's like some research out there to support that. Like, again, coming back to those like metabolic pathways and like, you know, percentage increase of hormones, whatever, there's some, some reason to think that it makes sense, but practically is it all that superior? I don't think so. I haven't seen a lot of, of evidence to support that that's the case. Um, so why overcomplicate things when you know that like things are probably going to change, there's going to be unforeseen circumstances. They may not respond to a, a phase the way they think you're going, that you think they're going to or whatever. Um, practically it just is a lot more trouble than it's worth. I'll, so I have made a decent number of enemies by the things I've said about periodization before. So I'll ask to like circle back to a thing I've tried to say, and you, you said it in your post a little bit earlier today, actually, which got me pretty excited, but I think when, when I occasionally criticize like the, the realisticness or practical application of, of traditional periodization, people tend to think that I'm saying, well, like you should not plan at all because in their head, those two are the same thing. Like any degree of planning of any kind, any application of logic to what happens when seems to be called periodization for some reason. And I don't know if I have a clear answer of like where the line is between like generic planning and actual periodization. But to me, there's, there's gotta be a difference between those two things or else the term periodization just doesn't really mean anything specific. So, right. Yeah. And it's like kind of semantic, but like, to your point, like you can plan, you can plan and like use logic and reasoning to influence your training cycles without it being predetermined. I don't know if that's like a good, good word or defining factor of like the sense of certainty of, I know that this is going to happen and this is when we're doing this thing. Um, you don't necessarily know that for certain and you have to be somewhat fluid. Um, like I might have just like one word written on a calendar for like a whole three month block of like kind of what I'm going to be doing. I'm not going to plan six months out and like actually write a workout down for like what workout you should be doing in 155 days. Like I am I'm not that I can't tell the future. Like, I don't know what you should be doing in 155 days. So we'll kind of have to, to see and find out. I just know the direction we want to go and I have a plan to get there. Um, but you know, you have to be willing to, to make those adjustments along the way. I also know experiences may vary in different units and different organizations in the military and tactical environment. But when I was doing normal soldier stuff in like a normal conventional infantry brigade, we, we had a lot of people, like depending on the level of leadership you were at, like junior guys tended to not know what was coming in like two weeks. Like they could be leaving for a month in the woods and not know it until like a week before. Or they could be about to be like horrifically sleep deprived for three days because there's some like flash exercise coming up that they found out about at the last minute. Like there's, there's all these things that are extremely difficult to plan around. And like, even if you do have access to like what's written on the calendar for the next six months of training at work, it, it changes all the time. And you, you have to have training that's flexible enough to account for those things. And some would argue that like, well, you can like, periodize and then adjust 
but it, it almost makes me wonder like what's the return on investment of all the time you spent trying to predict the future when you know you can't tell so i don't i, I think a lot of it too is like where periodization schemes come from in the first place of like if you're working with a, a large roster of athletes like on a big team right and you have a team prepping for an event you know a year from now it probably makes a little bit more sense um a better approach obviously would be to like coach every single athlete completely individually etc which might not be possible so periodization is kind of like your fallback of okay this is what makes the most sense given the constraints i'm working with but when you are coaching someone on one-on-one you're not bound by those constraints so don't apply like those principles to the situation you know i don't know why it's i mean this isn't a question so much as just like a rant because i know like alex i'm with you like i hear this all the time like i don't know why it's so inflammatory to suggest to a coach that like hey maybe instead of just taking some random russian thing like you should do stuff that makes sense for your athlete and your population. Like people get so pissed off when you suggest that. I don't get it. I think that people really start, like a lot of coaches really start to question their, their value with a lot of like, you know, I don't want to say debunking, but like when, when we say that certain things don't matter, they're like, that's one less way that I can provide value to my, to my people. And they get defensive about that. Cause they're like, okay, well if that like value add that I thought I had, that's gone. And then like you start stripping down like their confidence in themselves and they get defensive about it. Um, So I think like the more you realize like how many things don't matter, like the, the better and more confident that you have to be as a coach and like being able to deliver the the few things that really do. That kind of comes back to a theme we've had in the last few episodes of the, the quote unquote soft skills are actually the core of what you offer, like the, the relationship stuff and the getting people to care stuff and the, the like helping make them autonomous and the education stuff is, is arguably more important than the, like in the Excel spreadsheet X's and O's stuff. We, we have a trainer at, uh, we have a trainer at the gym, uh, that I work at and I, I won't name, <laughs> name his name or like throw him under the bus or whatever, but he, uh, he gets phenomenal results with his athletes, right? Like just some of the, some of the best results that, that you can see. And, uh, he always jokes that like, he's the dumbest trainer there. He's like, I, I don't know a whole lot. Like everyone else, like all the other coaches here are way smarter than me. Um, but like his results speak for himself because he is, he is truly a master of the soft skills. And like, it's by, by no means do I think he's actually dumb. He's a, he's a great trainer. Um, but it, it is a, it is a testament to like how important that really is. Like phenomenal results, like not, you know, a super high level of, of knowledge or like very sophisticated expertise just as a really, really good job connecting with people and getting them to do the work that matters. I think it's true across fields too, a little bit. Cause I've, I haven't had like a ton of exposure to a ton of different domains, but I've had a little bit and I've, I've run into the phenomenon that there's kind of two different types of PhDs in any given field. There's PhDs who went straight through the academic pipeline to the PhD and have stayed in academia the entire time teaching the subject. And then there's PhDs who like came back and forth between academia and like actually doing the thing. And they may or may not be a professor. They might just be like academically very qualified and doing practitioner stuff. And you're going to have very different conversations between those two. They have the same theoretically academic credentials, but, but one has like the skin in the game of like actually knowing what it's like on the ground. And that completely changes what they think is important and how much they emphasize certain things. And I think we see that in a really, really stark way in like the human performance strength and conditioning world. I, I think a lot of coaches that like get 
you know, kind of obsessed with, with education credentials, like constantly learning more can, can become disconnected. And like, they start to, to do things in their coaching practice or with their own training or whatever. It's like, you know, they start implementing, say like something they're studying or whatever. It's like cool to be a Guinea pig and, and such to some degree. Um, but it's like, they almost, they get off track, like becoming so obsessed with like their little niche or, you know, their area of expertise that they forget that like their area of expertise is not the most important thing. Um, it just becomes very central to, to their identity. So they treat it that way. Um, and not to say that those, those areas of research aren't important and that kind of thing. But I think it's important to realize like you can specialize in nuance and not like get caught up in it. I get frustrated with that kind of stuff sometimes because the way the system works requires like certain qualifications to get your foot in certain doors and things like that. Um, one of the best coaches I've ever been lucky enough to work with. I don't know if he listens to the podcast or not, but he'll know when he hears this that I'm talking about him, but I'm right he's, here. Uh, man. I'm, he's I'm <laughs> right here. I'm talking to you. It's okay. So he's, he's, he's a world-class athlete. Like That's he's, not he's competed, he's not competed at the highest levels, but he's also as many athletes are, uh, pretty ADHD. He does not have a bachelor's degree, um, but he has like a ton of experience coaching athletes of all different kinds, elite sports, all the way to like mom and pop general, whatever little kids, even all that stuff, like fantastic, fantastic coach. But because he hasn't checked certain boxes academically and certification wise, certain places won't even have a conversation with him about potentially working there and things like that. And I've, I've heard coaches say they know more about somebody in a five minute phone call than they do from a resume, but yet missing things on your resume will absolutely never get you to that five minute phone call. And it's pretty frustrating. Well, it's kind of a funny story. When I applied to be a, a coach at, at a local gym, I like kind of went through the interview process and like, like, you know, a great candidate, like we'd love to hire you. Um, when you can, you start blah, blah, blah. And like, we noticed that you don't actually have like an active, you know, personal trainer certification. I'm like, yeah, no. And are like, well, unfortunately we're not going to be able to move, move forward without, you know, that certification. Like, can you give me like a couple hours? And they're like, what? I'm like, yeah, just give me a couple hours. I'll, it'll be fine. And I, like a few hours later, like I paid for it, took the test and like, that's, that's it. Like, that's the rigorous certification you want. And I did it in like a couple <laughs> hours by the end of the day, like, and that's, that's not to like brag about like how easy it was or, or whatever. I'm just like, it's such a, like these arbitrary boxes that we want people to check are so fucking stupid. It's like, it's holding so many people back from, from doing cool things. And it's like worthless. It's just total bullshit. Well, that's, I mean, that, that is an interesting point that you make, because I say this quite frequently when I get asked questions about resources for coaching or doing concurrent, you know, hybrid training well, and it always goes back to, and I mean, I'll highlight you here, like guys on social media, guys with sort of their own organically created platforms are the ones that are putting out the best information on this type of training, which I would argue is probably for most people, the best type of training you could do. It's not coming from the institutions or like the literature it's coming from guys that may or may not have all the boxes checked, but they either through training themselves or training enough athletes with their methodologies have arrived at kind of what we would call best practices. I mean, Alex Viata is a good example of this. Like he literally, you know, people would say wrote the book on it and he may not be the guy that you would think of as like championing the CSCS or whatever certification or degree we think we need to have to be a quote unquote good coach. So it's just interesting to see, at least in this space, the hybrid space, most of the best practices are coming from kind of 
the bottom up as opposed to the top down. Yeah. And don't get me wrong. Like some of these, these certifications have their value, but like even the CSCS, which like people say it's, it's hard or whatever. Like that was a weekend cert. Like, I don't know if it's supposed to be a weekend cert, but like, if you actually have, <laughs> if you actually have like training experience and like the knowledge that you're supposed to have it, it should be like, I don't know. I probably sound like a dick for saying it, but like, if you struggle to pass that, like, Oh, I don't know, man. <laughs> um, I've, I've I, talked to people I, about it a lot and I'll, I'll disclaim it. I am, I, I drew will make fun of me. I'm wearing an NSCA shirt. Yeah. Right he's now. literally, this um, is not the first <laughs> podcast we've recorded where he's wearing that shirt. It's all, it's like, I've got like five shirts I work out in and I just like rotate through them. Sorry. But, <laughs> but, uh, it's, like, like you said, it's, it's treated as like the industry gold standard and it kind of is in a lot of ways, like it functions as that for a variety of purposes and you need it to get the door open to have a conversation about certain jobs. But I, I know they're talking about like theoretically by 2030, you'll be required to have a degree in specific fields to even sit for the test. But which I think is like a little bit funny, given that like my degree is in international relations and I had frankly, pretty limited experience other than just like reading some stuff and like training with some good coaches and stuff. And, and did I have to go learn a little bit of like anatomy and like bioenergetics kind of stuff for like a couple of weeks before the test? Yeah. Like I, I didn't like offhand no Krebs cycle and I had to learn their way of doing the nutrition calculations, even though that's not really within their scope of practice, that's fine. But, yep. <laughs> but, but there's like seven chapters in the middle about exercise technique. And I don't think I looked at a single page on any of them. Cause if you just like do stuff, you, yeah. you probably don't need to look at that. <laughs> well, so like the funny part, so like I, my background is physics. So like, I didn't have a, you know, relevant degree going into CSCS either. Um, and there's like a couple things that you have to memorize, right? Like Krebs cycle, their nutrition calculations and like that's the stuff that you, you never use again. <laughs> it's like the, yeah. the, the hard, the hardest parts of the CS CSCS are the things that matter the absolute least. And like the things that are actually important are the parts you only enough to open the book for. So it's like, this is our gold standard to me is frankly embarrassing. <laughs> well, it's hard because the, the flip side and I, I'm with you guys, like my background is in business, so I'm right there, but the flip side is no standard at all. And I mean, I think, Alex, you may know this better than me, but didn't they just say that like in some state, maybe it is like military veterans can teach without a certification at all. There's, there's some stuff going on down in Florida. I, I don't want to dive down a political rabbit hole. But the point there is like, it, it's a hard balance to strike. And like, I, I kind of tie this back into training in a sense, because it's like, I mean, Alec, here's a question for you. Like, your your biggest successes as an athlete did you arrive at that plan or that approach through some book or some cert certification or did you do it because you realized it worked just because you exposed yourself to it i i don't want to rag on certifications too much i feel like it, please feel like it's, you can now. do whatever you um want. <laughs> but like i i can't think of a certification that i've taken that like i really recall anything from like it's it's good foundational knowledge but like if you practice what you preach like if you are an athlete of some kind or like whatever like if you actually have exposure to the field like there's no real surprises in there like you don't open the book and be like oh my god i had no idea it's like you know there's there's nothing really like that if you have the experience like the cert would be great 
if someone just like woke up one day, they'd never worked out in their life. And they're like, I think I want to be a personal trainer. It's like, okay, maybe start with this, you know, start with this certification book. But like, if you've gone through the, like, if you've been in the weight room since you were 13 years old or whatever, and like talked to coaches and like talked with high performing athletes and like been in that space, like you learn a ton from that experience. And I don't think people realize like quite how much you learn until you go to open the book where like, you're supposed to learn this stuff. And you're like, I already know this stuff. Like, and like, it's, it is valuable information. So I think that's probably me discrediting the cert too much um, because the info in there is good. Uh, I just don't think people realize like how much you, you can acquire through that experience. I think the danger, the danger is less because you're right. Any certification is just a piece of paper. It's harmless. The education is generally good, better than not having it. Definitely. But I think the danger from what I've seen is, is less about what a book says maybe, and more about people getting hung up on the idea that if it is not included in that, it is therefore bad. And I think this speaks considerably to sort of the hybrid approach. We talk about interference effects. We talk about our thoughts on periodization, like a lot of coaches that I have seen, especially younger coaches will ignore or say that that is wrong because it was not in whatever manual they, they read or tested from. And so I think you could have all the letters in the world after your name. That's great. But I think you also have to come into it with enough of an open mind to say, Hey, maybe we can run and lift at the same time. And maybe the way that we go about doing that just looks a little bit different than what chapter six, page 78 said, heaven forbid, some Russian guy flips over in his grave because (laughs) we do this before that, or that's on Wednesday, you know, like people get so hung up in the details because it it is tied back to whatever background they came from. Like the, I have the the CES corrective exercise specialization and uh, just like going through that and like learning the, the NSCA's version of, of that. And then talking to physical therapists and be like, so what do you think about like this approach? Like, no, I don't do that at all. Like, okay, cool. (laughs) Cool. Um, yeah. yeah, So like, what did I just learn exactly? Um, but yeah, there's multiple ways of doing things, but I think it's, it's important to like check that knowledge against people who are actually out there doing these things successfully and be like, see, see some of the disconnect. I'll anonymize the story because I don't know if I'm like at liberty to retell it or anything. So I won't tie it to anyone in particular, but there, there was a guy, uh, a, a pretty accomplished NFL athlete, um, who went on to become an NFL strength and conditioning coach who went on to win NFL strength and conditioning coach of the year. Um, after all of those things had happened, it was identified that there were potential liability concerns. Cause even though he was the strength and conditioning coach of the year for like one of the most elite strength and conditioning oriented organizations on the planet, uh, he did not have his CSCS. So there might be some liability concerns about his ability to coach people on strength and conditioning. So he had to go back and get it. Wow. Um, he was, like, <laughs> it's it, like, I, and I know guy, like I just recent podcast guest episode, Mark was on the podcast. Um, he like pictures of him are in the book. Cause they like came and brought him in to like demonstrate things. And like, he helped with like content for the book. And then at the end of it, he has to go take the test. Like, like help put it together, but like, like, Hey, I don't know guys. Like, come on. (laughs) (laughs) Oh man. That's like, uh, I think it was, I think it was like Dean Somerset or something. Who's like been, you know, distinguished CSCS and like presented at their conferences and whatever, got a cease and desist because he like didn't renew or something. (laughs) Oh man. (laughs) 
just just crazy stuff so let me because i want to tie this back to one of the questions that i like to ask folks especially when we get into these more like tangible episodes that have i mean we we talk about these like the reps and sets episodes sort of jokingly but tangible takeaways in terms of resources since we're talking about some of them for you and as as folks look at hybrid training concurrent training what are what are some of the ones that you have found success with i know we mentioned alex's book hybrid athlete um yeah and then obviously your instagram page is like we mentioned just prolific with q and a's if anybody has a question don't ask alex and i go to alec alec with a c's instagram and fire to him because that's what he's doing between sets um <laughs> but what are some what are some resources that you would recommend to folks um and so don't get me wrong there's certainly some good books out there i think um like alex having written the the hybrid athlete he would even agree that like he's changed his mind on some things since he wrote it that was um, and next like he's 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 working on you know version 2.0 and all, all that kind of stuff um and i think like he's he's made some references in the past like people really latched on to that that book and they're out there like kind of spreading the gospel truth right which is cool uh, but then like some of the stuff that they're saying, like it's the gospel truth. He's like, I don't know if I really think that anymore. You know? <laughs> so like, <laughs> um, so like as, as great of a work as it was, and as, as cool as like a lot of these other resources are like, I'm always hesitant to like recommend certain resources because there's usually things in, in each one that I don't necessarily agree with. I don't want to like put my stamp approval, stamp of approval on something. Or I'm like, well, I didn't like that chapter or whatever. Um, but I heard your last guest, um, he kind of said, go to the people. And I, I listened to that. I'm like, that, that makes so much sense. Like go to the source, um, go to the source, of the information and like learn from people directly. Uh, Cause then you get to learn with them and not just like learn from the 2008 version of them who they probably think is dumb at this point. <laughs> I'll, so I, I know Drew wants to ask his next question, but I think like social media in general, I've seen this happening a lot recently. There's like feuds happening. So oh, like so, somebody will, cri- somebody will criticize an idea. Listen, one person hold on, has. Alex, pause, because you love a feud. I, I do. <laughs> I would generally do. But, but where the issue is, I think, is that one person will criticize another person's idea and the other person will respond by attacking the, the first person as though like criticism of an idea is unacceptable or that like professionals can like hold differing opinions and still respect each other. Like there's the, the most, and for whatever reason, every fitness professional that like crosses the threshold into like pseudo fame starts to exist in a bubble where like everything they post will be like riddled with like psychophant comments, cheering them on. And like anybody slightly disagreeing is the enemy. And I, I don't know how we got there. And I think that's honestly a huge problem that social media drives. Cause I think like willingness to disagree and willing to challenge ideas and being willing to change your mind on things are all like extremely important. And we've created an environment where that's not okay. Like I, I hope people feel okay. Like if I post something and somebody explains to me why I'm wrong, that's the most valuable thing I could get out of having a platform. Right. Like that's, that's better than people are saying like, yeah, man, awesome. Like, Oh, I, I learned something this time. That's perfect. So I, I recently, and I'll, I'll preface it with saying that, like, because I know how these like social interactions can get with like personal attacks and whatever, if I am ever going to like 
say correct someone or whatever. Like I'm always as ridiculously over the top nice as I can. I'm like, I don't want to give this person any reason to think that I'm just being a troll or like just here to be a pain in the butt. Like I want to come across as, as as genuine and as nice as I possibly can. Um, so I did this with someone recently, like a, a well-known fitness account who posted something that wasn't quite right. And I got into this like long message with the person. And I basically just like, hey, like this, this thing you said, like doesn't quite line up with the evidence. It's a little bit misleading for this and this reason. Just like that you should know, might want to look into it. Um, and basically they came back and they're like, this is slanderous. You're bullying me. I feel threatened. I'm like, what? What? <laughs> like I'm 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 this like little like I'm like at this little account like five thousand follower page just like sending a, a kind message and this person gets like who mind you like has you know a hundred thousand followers ever like supposedly is like I don't know worth something um comes back just like so so threatened and like the fact that you are like being threatened says way way more about you than what it than what it does about me. Um, and I, I continued to be as, as nice as I could. Um, but basically this, this person's counter argument to, to what I said about like, hey, this isn't, this isn't quite correct was it doesn't matter if it's correct um, because my intent is good. And like, I was, I was blown away that like, they, they're like, because like, I'm not trying to do any harm. And like, I think this post at large is still like benefiting people. I don't care that it's wrong. And I was like, Oh my God. <laughs> like, so I, I think, what? I think that's the most dangerous form of it, honestly. And I will say I could probably do to learn from you in like the being nice about how I say it. When I, when I bring up some of those things, I've been known to be extremely snarky. Uh, it's just part of who I am. I'm sorry, guys, but he's not sorry. I've, uh, there, there are certain pages and I'm not going to name anyone in particular. There are multiple, honestly, there's a bunch of them. It's kind of a theme who put out like, 90% good, accurate content and therefore have a well-deserved, pretty good reputation. And that's what makes the five or 10% of like problematic or wrong content more dangerous because you right. now have a huge platform where you're very trusted because you put out a bunch of generally good stuff. That doesn't mean all of your ideas are beyond challenging because you're still human and every now and then you're going to put out some crazy stuff. And, but like they, they become untouchable and people will like freak out that you're criticizing them if you try and say something about it. And that, like, I think big platforms with good reputations and like a track record of excellence should frankly be held to an even higher standard because that's, that's the space they're operating in. I don't know how we get there, but. Yeah. Yeah. That, and my, my interaction with this, with this individual is a great kind of like, you know, microcosm for the, the industry at large with like a lot of their, their counter arguments and, and stuff like that. And, and one of them came back to um, just kind of responding disrespectfully to, to people who like maybe were disrespectful in the first place of like, this post is stupid or whatever, or like, you know, just stuff like that. But when like, you're a professional, like when you are like responsible for like educating the masses, like you should be held to a higher standard. Like just because someone's a dick to you doesn't like, mean that you, that you should be a, a dick back to them when you're like a fitness celebrity like the, there's just no excuse for that this tease up i like i like these sort of closing questions because they sound cool but this tees up a nice one because again talking about your your q a's and one thing i appreciate with the way that you handle it kind of to what we're talking about here like 
they are drawn out. They are lengthy. A lot of times the answer is it depends, but you don't just leave it at that. You go further and kind of explain the why, which I think is great. So the question I have for you is twofold. What's, what's one thing as you've kind of grown as your own hybrid athlete and as a coach that you've changed your mind about? Yeah. And the, the big one for me is it's less so like, you know, massive shifts in, in perspective. Um, I, I generally find it to be a red flag if someone does like a complete 180 on something. Like to me, that's probably indicative of the fact that like they didn't have a very well-formed or well-educated opinion on it in the first place. Like if you come from a, a point of like knowledge and expertise in the first place, like your perspectives will shift. Um, but it's, it's rare that like there's just this massive turn unless like you just were not educated at all in the first place. Not saying it can't happen, but like people who like, they're like, I've completely changed my mind on like all of these things. And like, I don't know, it's, it's a, a little bit of a red flag for me as opposed to just like learning and growing with, with the evidence as it evolves um, as opposed to these, you know, like 180 shifts. Uh, but a big one for me is just kind of a shift in like understanding what, how important certain things are and like what to prioritize. Um, so getting back into, you know, the, the conversation around consolidation of stressors and, and pre-fatigue um, and volume and stressor management, like I used to be the person that like had all of my training in a spreadsheet and like calculating numbers and like doing the math on like weekly progressions. And it just doesn't matter. Like this, <laughs> the, the amount of time and stress that like it took me to like work through some of that stuff was like for sure harming my results, not helping. Um, she was like realizing like, you know, being able to zoom out and see the big picture and like realize like, realize like how important all these things are. Um, being able to understand the nuance, being able to understand like, what, what things matter, not only what things matter, but how much they matter. Um, so there's, there's a lot of things like that. Um, I used to get far too caught up in, in some of those like minute optimizations um, and, and miss the bigger picture. And I'd say nowadays, um, both with my own training and with people that I work with, um, uh, especially personally, my training is a lot more fun. Um, it's hard and it's fun, um, but I, if you tried to like ask me like how many sets of this do you do or like what weight do you do for this exercise like a lot of those questions I might not even have an answer to um which might surprise a lot of people um you know considering how much I care about my training and how much I care about fitness and stuff like that um I I try to just have a lot more fun with it nowadays I see that as like an an underappreciated variable um you know more than I I used to of just like the enjoyment side of things um you know, being able to, you know, enjoy the process, enjoy what you can do with the results. I like how you phrase that, enjoy the process and enjoy what you can do with the results. Cause I think to your point, especially again, wrapping this up in a bow through this hybrid conversation, if you do just kind of hit everything well enough to be competent, you open up a lot of doors in terms of what you actually can do and then all of a sudden training becomes less of a slog and more of like a rewarding process which sounds corny but i mean it is true if, if you're able to be strong and then run a 5k like there's a lot you can do yeah well like you know for me it's one of the things that, that my wife and i love to do is is travel like every chance we get we're we're going somewhere and doing something and when you are a hybrid athlete like when you have like strength and endurance and all this kind of stuff it opens up a lot of doors for like 
being able to do, do a lot of things and not be tired and not like <laughs> feel like shit from it. Um, so like, you know, going to a new city and like walking from sunrise to sundown and feeling fine and not like, <laughs> you know, it, it allows you to have more fun. Cause like, you're not like the experience isn't burdened by the fact that like you're tired or hungry or like sweaty or gross or whatever, you're like walking all day. Like what's the big deal? Um, so it just like opens up so much more opportunity and experience. Um, and to me, that's like what being fit is all about. Um, you know, I, I love training. I love setting PRs. I love the grind of like heading into the gym, even when I don't necessarily like want to or whatever, like the dedication or process or whatever you want to call it. Um, I definitely enjoy that side of things. Um, but like, I think people don't talk enough about just like the joy of being in shape. Like it's, it's freaking great. Like what a way to experience this life. I love that. The joy of being in shape. Let's close on that. Cause that was beautiful. I like it. It's a perfect, <laughs> perfect conclusion. I like, thank you very much, man. I appreciate it. And, um, hopefully we send just a deluge of people your way to just fire off Q and A's cause he'll answer all of them. You will. I'll put an asterisk. Down on it he filters <laughs> through them and picks the good questions he does not answer all of them and i i think he might hit a wall if he tried to answer every question he gets i i tried for the longest time and i realized that it's, it was not going to be sustainable oh man well thank you 